Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace. I'm your host, Olga Olker. I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope. Here in the studio with us, we have Sabine Fisher. Sabine is a team leader of the Public Diplomacy EU and Russia Project, which is run by the Goethe Institute in Moscow and the Institute Francais in Moscow and financed by the European Union. Welcome, Sabine. Thank you very much. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Public Diplomacy EU and Russia Project is? Yes, of course. So the Public Diplomacy EU and Russia Project is really about the implementation of the fifth of the five guiding principles the EU has for its relations with Russia, which is about Mm -hmm. the support of Russian civil society and people-to-people contacts. So So maybe you should tell us what all five of the principles are and then we can... So in 2016, the EU member states agreed on five guiding principles for the EU's relations with Russia. The first of these principles is the full implementation of the Minsk agreements as a precondition for substantial change in the relationship. The second principle is strengthening the relations with the EU's eastern neighbors and also Central Asia. The fifth principle is about EU resilience against hybrid threats coming from Russia Principle four is about selective engagement with Russia in areas where interests coincide and they can be international conflicts, for instance, like Syria, like Iran, but also areas like climate change, where both have an interest in mutual cooperation. And the fifth principle is about EU engagement with the Russian society. And this is what we do in the project. So we have many different formats in Russia, but also in the EU, to which we bring events, study visits, small roundtables, to which we bring Russian participants and participants from the EU to discuss a very broad range of different uh, topics related to economic relations, societal topics, social policy, climate change, environment, um, etc, etc. So it's really about bringing people together, increasing interaction, increasing engagement, and also mutual understanding where possible. And how is it going? Is it working? It is working. And actually, there is in the Russian society, really a great interest to engage with the European Union and with Europe Mm -hmm. in a more general sense. So this is actually counterintuitive if you look at the level of political relations, which are very strained at the moment. But at the societal level, there really is a great interest to engage, for instance, in conversations about environmental protection, about climate change, because there is really a changing attitude in the Russian society about these topics, about the situation of people with disabilities, for instance. Yeah. So we talk about many different issues and we feel that there really is an interest to engage. There is a demand in the Russian society and that helps us to reach out Mm -hmm. and to bring people together. And has anything surprised you? Because your background is international relations, security studies. Some of these issues are more in line with that. Some are not. Has anything surprised you about how these conversations uh, go forward? Well, I mean, for me personally, it has been very fascinating to see how attitudes have been changing and are changing in certain areas in which I perhaps would not have expected that exactly or expected it to this extent. Take, for instance, um, environmental protection or a topic like um, the situation of persons Mm -hmm. with disabilities, which I indeed 
did not have much to do with before mm -hmm. I started to work in this project. So this indeed has been a very new experience for me, yes. You've mentioned the five principles, which were, of course, in relation to Russia's actions in Crimea and Ukraine and the sanctions that came afterwards uh, from Europe. To what extent is this new interest you're seeing in Russia for engagement a result of those sanctions and is there not resentment as well? There certainly is also resentment and I would not directly connect the political level that you just mentioned and the overall attitude for instance in, in the Russian society with regard to the annexation of Crimea or as it's being put in Russia the reintegration or integration of Crimea into um, the Russian state and this interest to engage that I just uh, talked about because, I mean, you really have to separate between these highly controversial, high political issues, which are not, I mean, the annexation of Crimea is not really questioned in the Russian context or in the Russian society. So the, the overall majority in Russia supports this. Yeah, but still, they may have a strong interest to engage with the European Union on other issues. So I think it's not very good to, to connect these two things directly. So from what you're saying, is this a wish in Russian society to reach out to Europe or is it just a general wish in Russian society to be more international? Are they also reaching out to other parts of the world? I think it's both. But still, in a certain way, you still have a very positive perception of Europe in terms of living standards, the European societies, economic situation, etc., in Russia. Russians still very much look to Europe when it comes to these things. They still, if they have the possibility, send their kids to Europe to study, for instance. Yeah. I mean, there has been this turn toward China and Asia in Russian foreign policy since, well, actually since 2012, but much stronger still since 2014. But this has not changed people's attitudes when it comes, for instance, to education. So they would still send their kids to Europe and not to China. And I think this says something about the general attitude of people in Russia towards Europe. So as a Western foreign policy specialist who has been living in Moscow for a few months, as opposed to just visiting frequently, which you used to do, what are you hearing from your Russian colleagues and counterparts about Russian views in that grand strategic sense of Russia's relationship with the EU? Do they want to keep it as not a great relationship on the high politics side and some human to human contacts? Or is there an interest in fixing things? Is there variation in positions? There definitely is variation in positions. And I think this is a very important point because most people who look to Russia from the outside and don't have this inside view, if you like, perceive the Russian position or the Russian policy discourse, let's put it like that, as very homogeneous. And this is not the case. There are definitely different positions, but you have a very strong mainstream which reflects the, the official foreign policy mm -hmm. position. And here we have a lot of resentment vis-a-vis -vis the European Union, vis-a-vis -vis the, the United States, a very strong emphasis on multipolar world mm -hmm. in which Russia, of course, is one of the key actors, one of the poles. The European Union does not really figure in that image of the world that is dominant in the Russian mm -hmm. discourse because it, it doesn't have a lot of hard power. It is not um, a security actor. It is seen as an appendix of the United States. The European Union 
as such is not being taken very seriously. And then you, you have, of course, this pivot to Asia and to China in particular, which has been very, very important in the foreign policy discourse and also in foreign policy. So it, it is being implemented. And that even further diminishes, if you like, the weight of the European Union from this official Russian or mainstream Russian perspective. Is it in the interests of the European Union to change Russian perspectives and perceptions of the institution as an actor? And if so, how would it go about doing that? Yes, it is definitely in, in the interest of the European mm -hmm. Union. And of course, it is um, really not good that the Russian perception developed in this way. Personally, I really don't agree with this Russian view of the European Union. And I think Russia, the people who have this mm -hmm. perspective, they actually make a mistake because the European Union is still Russia's most important economic and trade partner. Yeah, exactly. And this is just to 100% neglected. Even with the sanctions. Even, even with the sanctions. There are dynamics there too, of course. So China has replaced Germany as the single most important country in Russia's foreign trade. But still the European Union as a whole still represents, I think, more than 40% of Russia's um, external trade and economic relations. Which is huge. Which is huge. Um, so Russia is still very much dependent on its economic relations with the European Union. And this is just completely linked. So I personally think that the Russian perception of Europe is actually mistaken. Yeah. Still, the European Union should have an interest in changing this view. But this is very difficult, of course. You've talked about the five principles that were agreed after the Ukraine and Crimea actions, but has Europe coalesced around these five principles or are they increasingly divided about them? And if they're divided, what can be done? Well, I mean, the idea, the key idea about the five principles really is to forge a consensus. And in fact, the five principles um, have been a very good instrument to forge this consensus because they really cater to the interests and perceptions and also perspectives of different EU member states. Russia has always been a very controversial issue inside the European Union. You have groups of member states with very different positions. So the five principles have really helped to forge a consensus because they have all these different elements, um, which are important from different member states' um, perspective. We now have a new situation because the EU itself is transitioning because of this a discussion has started here in Brussels. And of course, we have the initiative of Emmanuel Macron, who has made statements and has reached out to Moscow with new ideas, with a new vision. And this is also being debated in a very controversial uh, way inside the European Union and among member states. So indeed, we are now in a situation where the five principles are being discussed mm. and also criticized. And we will have to see how this plays what out. What would you suggest the new commission do? I would definitely suggest the new commission and the new high representative to stick to the idea that um, policy towards Russia must really cater to and must bring in different member states' perspectives. And this is really something that the five principles have helped to do. So whatever you call the policy in the end, it should be based on this idea and it should be based not on grand visions because I'm very skeptical that at the moment it is possible to even discuss that with a view to Russia because our positions are so different. So the idea of finding compromise between uh, different member states' um, perspectives and looking for small steps that can be taken in relations to Russia should be preserved. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.
You're listening to War and Peace, and we're talking to Sabine Fisher about EU-Russian relations. So what we're really talking about just the last couple of minutes here is the fourth principle, right, selective engagement. How do you see the selective engagement agenda? What's the art of the possible with Russia? And what are the interests, really? Because I think that's where some of the debate is. Right, there's this notion, and I think uh, France has been the country that's put it forth the most, that we need to get along better with Russia, somewhat uh, American perspective. And Macron in that is following several American presidents who've tried to have resets with Russia because we want a better relationship, but they failed. So how does this work for the EU if it failed for America? Is it different for the EU than it is for America? I think it is definitely different. First of all, because the EU and Russia are direct neighbors. This is the starting position and this is not going to change. It's just a geographic um, fact. And of course, if you compare the relationship between the US and Russia and the EU and Russia, they are very, very different because, okay, the US and Russia have always had a very important and do have a very important uh, relationship in, in security terms. But the European Union and Russia have a much more multifaceted relationship, including societal relations, including very intense economic relations, political relations. So I think the structure of these two relationships is very, very different. And this makes it very important for the European Union to keep looking for ways of selective engagement with Russia. And as I said before, selective engagement can take place on different levels. So there's a variety of international conflicts or international issues that are very relevant, both from an EU and Russian perspective, such as, for instance, Iran, such as Syria, even though Syria, of course, is a very, very difficult one, and other conflicts where there is space for selective engagement and for cooperation and where both sides need to explore that space and try to come to terms, even though they have very difficult political relations. And I do indeed think that climate change mm -hmm. as a global challenge, which affects both the EU and Russia in very serious ways, should be one of the areas that both sides should focus on. Mm -hmm. And right? Russia has a newfound interest. And Russia has a newfound interest. Russia has recently joined the Paris Agreement mm -hmm. on Climate Change. And this, I hope, is an opening for both sides to look into deeper cooperation. What do you think drove that Russian change of heart? Well, I mean, Russia is one of the signatory states of the Paris Agreement. So it was clear that at some point they would ratify it and, and join it. And also, I think there is an increased understanding in Russia that climate change is becoming a challenge, including mm. for Russia. Are there, mm, are there other areas you think that the Europeans could actually listen to Russia a little bit more, take it more seriously, engage with it more on a political level, or is that impossible given the situation in Ukraine and Crimea? Or do you think the European, I mean, I'm not sure the Europeans don't listen to the Russians. I'm not sure either, I have to say. <laughs> I do think that there is um, a number of areas that are important in that respect. European security remains an extremely important area. And of course, there are, there are huge challenges there. So EU member states and the EU should engage with Russia and are engaging with Russia. In fact, in, for instance, the framework of the OECE, we have the structured informal dialogue in the framework of the OECE on European security and uh, conventional uh, arms control and so on and so forth. So this is a very important area. The security situation in Asia is changing. This is another area. Russia is 
playing an increasingly important role also in Asia. It's a junior partner to China, obviously, but it is part of a changing regional setting. So, again, this is something the EU is, of course, not a security actor in Asia, but it is engaged in Asia. So this is something that Russia and the EU should talk about. And of course, the situation in the Middle East and uh, Northern Africa is an extremely important issue from an EU perspective for many, many reasons. And Russia is basically today one of the, if not the key player in this region. Very different positions, again, very controversial, but I don't think that the EU has a choice here. It needs to engage with Russia on Middle East and, and Northern Africa. So is Ukraine in its own way also an area of selective engagement under conditions of extreme disagreement? Of course. I mean, it's mm -hmm. probably the area of selective engagement under conditions of very different positions. I mean, on Ukraine, at the political level and at the level of the peace process, if you want to call it a peace process, it is not the EU as such, and it's, it's mm -hmm. not EU institutions that are engaged. It's actually mainly two member states, um, in other words, Germany and France, who engage with Russia and Ukraine on uh, forging some kind of an agreement on the Donbass and to a much lesser degree also on Crimea. Yes, I mean, and of course, Ukraine remains the single most important issue when we look at European security, because it's an ongoing war that we have in that country, in the east of that country. And how do you see EU policy evolving in the effort to help resolve the conflict in Ukraine? What's the art of the possible? Well, I mean, I think at the moment, the art of the possible is to keep conversations going. And this has been a very, very difficult task over the past few years. We have mm -hmm. a new opening right now after the elections in Ukraine, mm -hmm. both presidential and parliamentary elections. So with the, the victory of Volodymyr Zelensky and with him being in a very strong position inside the country because of the strong support his party had in the parliamentary elections, we indeed have a new situation and he has been taking initiative. He has been taking steps also vis-a-vis -vis Russia. The EU and EU member states have been supportive of this development. Mm -hmm. And indeed, we have seen some progress in the spring and summer and also early autumn of this year. The problem I see is that I don't really see the Russian position changing. So there is a new opening. I believe that the Ukrainian side, even though this is very controversial also domestically, so it's very difficult for Zelensky to actually implement that policy or follow through on his own goals, but it is happening. Whereas, So there is a, clearly a wish on the Ukrainian side to use that window of opportunity. I don't see much desire on the Russian side. So I think the possibilities mm -hmm. remain rather limited. There's no public pressure to get this over with in Ukraine and the Russian dinner parties you go to in Moscow or the leading intellectuals you meet? You mean public pressure public in pressure Russia? Pressure on Russia to come to some compromise in Ukraine? No. There is, if you look at opinion polls and you can also sense that in conversations, there is a fatigue, an increasing fatigue in the Russian society of Ukraine. But we have to keep in mind that Ukraine remains a very strong topic in Russian propaganda as well. So this fatigue does not imply that people's question, for instance, the annexation of Crimea 
or question the Russian approach towards um, the, the conflict in the Donbas or Ukraine in general. But there is a fatigue and there's an increasing unwillingness unwilling to accept uh, expenses for foreign policy because the socioeconomic and the economic situation inside the country is declining and has been declining for a number of years. For instance, we have declining income for five years in a row, and people feel that. So there is this there's increasing discontent. There is less willingness to accept an expensive foreign policy, but that does not imply that the principal position of the Russian leadership vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, vis-a-vis -vis Crimea, vis-a-vis -vis Donbass is changing. And so, no, there is no public pressure for Russia to make compromise with Ukraine. Are sanctions seen in Russia as one of the costs or are they seen as a completely separate phenomenon? Sanctions are seen, if you talk about Ukraine, indeed, and this is a very important point, sanctions indeed are seen as a separate phenomenon. Sanctions have been portrayed in the Russian propaganda and state-controlled uh, Russian media as an instrument of punishment of the West in general, mm -hmm. so the EU and the US against Russia. And they have been barely connected to what, what was going on in Ukraine in, in 2014 and 15. So there is a disconnect And people's attitude towards sanctions, of course, is is um, negative. In terms of your selective engagement, seen from a Western perspective, you've talked about the difference between Crimea and the situation in Donbass, eastern Ukraine. Can you tell us a little bit about how the West should treat the situation in Crimea, which is so little talked about now? I think Crimea is not talked about very often publicly in, let's say, EU member states, but it is very much on the minds of EU decision makers and representatives. And um, the main thing here is, I think that there must not be any recognition or acceptance of the annexation of Crimea. There isn't much that the European Union or any other Western actors can do at the moment to change this, also because the Russian attitude towards Crimea is not changing. From a Russian perspective, and this is what I'm being told in conversations in Moscow, basically every time the topic comes up, is from a Russian perspective, this chapter is closed. Yeah? And as long as the Russian position doesn't change, I'm afraid there is not very much beyond what has been done in 2014 and 2015 to be done about that problem. But the policy that we have in terms of non-recognition of the annexation, in terms of voicing and criticizing, for instance, the internal situation in Crimea, the human rights situation vis-a-vis Crimean -vis Tatars and human rights activists, etc., and, of course, the economic isolation of Crimea. I think these are important elements of Western, of EU policy, and they should be kept up. And also, of course, the EU has imposed a number of sanctions with a view to the annexation of Crimea, including the, the economic isolation, but also travel bans and asset freezes against political actors in Crimea, but also in Russia, who were involved in the events um, in February and March uh, 2014. These sanctions need to be preserved. That doesn't mean that if there's real progress on the Donbass, you cannot move on the sanctions about Donbass, but the sanctions that are connected to the annexation of Crimea need to be kept. So if there is progress in Donbass, how do you think uh, the European Union should move forward on the sanctions that are linked to that conflict? The EU decided in 2015 to package mm -hmm. the 
different sanctions it had imposed to react to the escalation of the war in Donbass and to link this package to make the lifting of all of these mm -hmm. sanctions conditional upon the full implementation of the Minsk agreements. This was at the time a necessary move, including because there was a consensus on the sanctions mm -hmm. among member states yeah. that needed to be preserved. But of course, at the same time, the EU lost its own flexibility with a view to these sanctions. And that, of course, also had an impact on the incentives mm -hmm. the EU gave to Russia with a view to the implementation of the Minsk agreements. I think if there's real progress on the ground with regard to the implementation of the Minsk agreements, but that would really include also a visible change of the Russian position. The EU could at some point and in an internal debate consider to unpack mm -hmm. this package and to look into how specific sanctions could be linked to concrete moves on the level of the conflict, but also on the level of Russian-Ukrainian relations and lift it if there was really progress in those areas. I don't think that the situation is anywhere near that point, but if it were to get to that point, this could be something that could be considered. And I think that's a really great and at least somewhat perspective, if not optimistic, end point. Sabine, <laughs> thank you so much for thank joining us. Thank you for the us. invitation. Thanks to all of our listeners. Thanks to our producer, Anton Leroux of Bull Media. Thanks to Miranda Sonnex, uh, who makes things work on the crisis group side. And we'll talk to you again in two weeks. And it's goodbye for me too, Hugh Pope. You can follow all our work on our website, www.crisisgroup.org, under the Russia tag. And you can see Sabine Fisher's co-authored report on selective engagement between the EU and Russia on eu-russia-expertnetwork.eu War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.